This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers, and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets. Hello and welcome to Writers in Tech, a podcast brought to you by the UX Writing Hub, a platform that is all about educating UX writers, content designers, and writers in tech. By the way, my name is Yuval. I'm the founder of the UX Writing Hub and I'm the host of this podcast. And I'm very happy to have you here today. And today I have a very special guest. Uh, his name is Diego Gaglia and he is a content designer at Netflix. Diego have an amazing show, a podcast for all of you Spanish-speaking people in the audience about the Silicon Valley. So you might want to check it out as well. Diego, how are you? Good. Hi, Yuval. Thank you for having me. Really happy to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time and being a guest in our podcast. I was looking forward to it for a while now. Sure. sure. So I know that you have a podcast for the past five years. You start podcasting, which is pretty cool. So how was that experience for you? It's been a super fun experience. My podcast, I do it with a partner, Fernando, who's Mexican, I'm Argentinian. Angle for the podcast is we do interviews about Silicon Valley in Silicon Valley with Spanish-speaking, mostly startup founders and investors. So we tell you stories about Silicon Valley from first-person point of view and in Spanish, which is not very common or didn't used to be very common until now podcasting has reached Latin America finally and it's becoming way more common. And it's very important to say the name of the podcast is called El Valle de los Tercos, which uh, in Spanish means Valley of the Hard-Headed. Because one of the main things that these people need to be to triumph or at least to make it in Silicon Valley is to be super stubborn and hard-headed. So that's why we named the podcast that. Amazing. How did your experience started in the Silicon Valley? I moved here about six years ago. As I said, I'm from Argentina. I was a journalist for 20 years and I started out in newspapers in Argentina. Then I, I moved to New York to go to graduate school and worked in media there and in both Spanish and English. And then I moved to Mexico City for another few years. Then finally I landed in California. I live in Santa Cruz, which is on the beach close to Silicon Valley. So I get the best of both worlds. And that's how I landed here. And slowly I started turning from journalism into tech because obviously it's the source of the best jobs in the area. And journalism, as you know, is an industry that's where it's becoming harder and harder to make a living. So let's say that the choice was made for me that I, I, I went into tech. And after a couple of years working as a content strategist, I started finding UX writing projects in the company that I was working at. It was SurveyMonkey. Right? SurveyMonkey, yes. And it was really fun to do UX writing because it, it felt so much closer to journalism than the usual content strategy you do for brand and for marketing. And so I started looking for jobs in that field. And I was lucky enough that at the same time, Netflix reached out to me and that process went well. And I ended up joining Netflix about a year and a half ago, a little more as a content designer in the growth space. Amazing. What does it mean, the content designer in the growth space at Netflix? Yeah, basically the difference is we have a team that's working in the member space, the messages that you see when you're watching Netflix, either on your mm -hmm. mobile phone or your TV or your computer uh, or other devices also. And a few of my teammates are writing those amazing messages that you see, like, are you still watching? Other hits that are well known. <laughs> I know you have interviewed Ben Baron Nugent before here uh, on this <laughs> podcast, and he's uh, our amazing TV writer. 
He writes for the TV screen. And the, another side of the content design team works for growth, which is the non-member experience. We are trying to attract more people to Netflix, obviously. And there's another, I should mention, another part of the content design team that works for the Netflix studio, which is the, the part of Netflix that helps creators put out movies and TV shows. Amazing. Is there a difference between the marketing department and the content design of the growth team? Yes, we are very different in that we don't work uh, together a lot. The growth team owns everything on the product side and marketing is more on the, let's call it publishing side and social. So I think mm -hmm. they do an amazing job because as I can follow Netflix social accounts, for example, in Spanish and English, in Latin America or in India or in the US or, or in Europe, you see how the marketing folks are have adapted the Netflix voice to different languages, different geographies. They have this amazing rapport with fans, movie fans and show fans all over the world. And that's something that I really think is, is really well done. But we, as growth, we focus more on the product experience and they are more on the talking to the audiences. Amazing. And you're trying to create some kind of a consistent experience between the marketing and For sure. Yeah. And that's a big challenge for a company that's growing fast and trying to talk to so many audiences, right? Staying consistent. So we have been developing the infrastructure, let's call it, to make sure that writers across Netflix can have guidance on what the, the voices of Netflix is, right? And I was actually coordinating the creation of our first style guide which, you know, is something that's very common in companies that come from the startup world. And one day they hear the words UX writing and they are like, what is that? And why do we need it? Then they hire their first UX writer and then they realize how valuable that is, start creating a team. And after a couple of years, the team says, hey, we need a style guide. We need a glossary. We need tools that are going to help us scale our work so we don't have to repeat the same task or the same conversation around the word or around the term every single time. And so I personally uh, love that kind of work, creating tools and systems that are going to help a team be more valuable and be more helpful to its partners. I've done that in journalism as well. Before I was in tech, I already had written one or two style guides for a magazine that I used to run, for example. And then at Monkey also, I was working on the style guide team. And here on Netflix, I helped coordinate the different writing teams. We have a few different writing teams to come up with a unified style guide. And that was a really cool project. It took most of 2020, I would say. And now it's done and we are, we are pretty happy that we have it, you know, because all those questions that were floating in the air and never resolved now have a, an answer and it's clear and it's in the same document for everyone to see. Amazing. Who is the owner of that style guide in your team? Is it like one person or the whole team is in charge of that? The way it worked was we created like a task force. I was just making sure that the trains ran on time, as, as we say. So getting people together, organizing the meetings, making sure that the right discussions were had at the right time, and then documenting that on the style guide and documenting our decisions as well. So we know why we're doing something. Because as a writer, you know, this happens to almost everyone, that you find a screen, let's say, an experience that has words that you maybe don't agree with, and you're questioning why it was written that way. And 
it doesn't mean that the, it has to be static and always stay that way. It's just that we need to know why the decision was, was made at the time that it was made. So we try to document the decisions as well. So the style guide doesn't have an owner, but I was basically in charge of making it, putting it together with, with the input from all the writers that were participating who really helped a lot. Because as I, I was saying, when you have a writer that writes for a mobile screen and a writer that writes for TV, the needs and the constraints are different. So you need their opinions and points of view before you reach a decision to really crystallize a style that's going to be good for everyone, right? And that's going to be good for the brand, ultimately. Amazing. And, and what tools were you using to document that? Like, uh, is there a specific tool? Just online documents, no, nothing very fancy. Got it. it was mostly mm -hmm. just making sure that the information was in one place and available to everyone. And then... We use a lot at Netflix is socializing, is sharing sharing information widely with all the teams that need it and repeating it every now and then so that people know where to find it. But basically, Google Docs was the tool. That's fantastic. Amazing. That's about creating content style, guys. And, and this is a challenge that many companies have today and many of my clients too also. They want to create some kind of a consistent voice and tone, but it's a huge challenge, you know, to document everything and, and to make sure that, you know, everybody in the company would actually use it eventually. So that's a, a big challenge. I want to ask you, Diego, I know that you are bilingual, so you speak Spanish and English. And do you find it useful in your work? Do you do some kind of a localization work as well? Or how does it work exactly? Yeah, no, I don't do localization work, but the fact of being bilingual or almost multilingual because I speak a little Portuguese and I did study French, but I would easily get lost in France. I've been there a couple of times and <laughs> I can order food at a restaurant with a little help from the from the wait staff. So basically all the languages that I've been exposed to are Romance languages as opposed to the Anglo-Saxon branch of languages. And I think that's really helpful because it helps you pre-plan what a sentence structure will be, for example. And even if you're not going to be translating it, you know that sentences are just not going to work. And English, as I said, I have worked professionally as a writer in English and Spanish for many, many years. And I always preferred English because it's so malleable and so flexible. And Spanish is more structured. The grammar doesn't have so much room to play. But that is something that's important to know when you're writing in English, because you're writing, let's say, quote unquote, in the easier language, when you can get more creative and move words and phrases around within a sentence. And then that's not going to be able to be replicated in the other languages, whichever they are, right? So trying to keep sentences simple is one immediate learning that you get from knowing what the sentence is in another language, right? And in general, also just not using idioms and stuff like that. Yeah, just making sure that translators are going to be able to find an easy way to explain. And one thing that I do uh, that I used to use a lot as a news editor when I'm talking to the writers was, how many ideas do you have in this sentence? How many concepts? Because, for example, if you have a, a button, a CTA, right, a call to action, that has more than one or maybe two ideas, you're making it very complicated for other languages to fit three ideas in a button, right? It should be one probably. Sometimes we have an action and another qualifier, an ad adjective or something. We say like join now, for example, or join today, let's say. So that would be two, two concepts, right? 
but you have to stay aware of those things because you're making life really hard for a translator if you ask them to in include a lot of information there. And sometimes you look at the, the words in other languages and now it's such an easy word in English, but in French, I think the most used one is maintenant, which is 12 letters, 11 letters or something like that. So <laughs> it makes it really complicated. You think, oh, this is a nice, cute, small button, but then you see localized and it's huge, right? I also want to say that it's important to have not just the linguistic perspective, but also the multinational perspective and multicultural perspective. Because when you talk to people about localization, they give you an answer similar to what I just said, right? Which is length, copy length and nothing else. And that's not really having a global awareness and a global perspective. You have to think about how the ideas that you're using will fit into the culture. And so many times, one thing that we do is have a conversation with the globalization team and actual linguists that are going to do the translations before we even write the words to anticipate what their needs are going to be and possibilities and constraints are when we give them the copy, right? The, the text that they're going to have to translate. So we call it polling the linguists because we have over 30 different languages to which we translate the, the original copy in English. And so we send them a question and they all answer the same question. And so from that, we use that input to, you know, think differently about the copy before we write it. So one part of your process is to set up some kind of a poll if you are not sure about some kind of a concept. Exactly. And then you let all of your uh, linguistic experts, translators, and to answer you, basically answer your questions. And based on that, you create the, the finalized copy. So you know it will be localized in a way that would make sense. Yeah. For example, one of my teammates, Rene Kroshaw, who's a great writer and a very strategic thinker, was working on a screen where we had different types of devices that were showing you where you can watch Netflix. And so she asked the linguists, how does it work for us to actually name the brands? Let's say we say iPhone or Android phone or something else. Is that going to work in your country? Is that going to work in your language? And in some places it does, in some places it doesn't. So you need to create a solution that's more globally aware. And that's, that's, I think the most important part of this is not just thinking about whether this copy is going to fit in the button. I don't want to reduce it to that. It's more about, is this concept going to resonate with the people that I'm talking to? Because as we are lucky and enough to be writing for people all over the world, and that's uh, just amazing. And so we should be mm -hmm. making the effort to actually talk to them, right? Amazing. I know, I know also that your team always talking about becoming more global and it's currently already like a global team, like many people from all over the world work in Netflix. How does that work? Like I know that you're hiring many people right now from many people from every country, basically. Yeah. When a company has been born in one country, in this case, the US, obviously the culture internally reflects that. And for many years that, that will be the case, but I think what we're trying to do is transcend that because we are now a global service and product that, as I was saying, is used all over the world. And so I think bringing in people who have different perspectives, like what I was mentioning, can help us get those voices in the room, which is really important because I don't feel like I can speak for all of Latin America, right? 
but I did grow up in one country, Argentina, and I spent seven years in Mexico. And I actually have a master's in Latin American studies as well. And so I feel like I have a voice that can speak for Latin American sensitivities, for perspectives, for the culture in different countries. Just, for example, in a presentation to the whole design team, an organization that's, I'm going to guess, 100 and something, 150 people maybe, I was explaining to them this idea that the Spanish that we use, which uh, in the localization business is called SLA as Espanol for Latin America, it's not mm -hmm. a Spanish that any human speaks because it's a generic Spanish that has been created to address 20 or 25 markets in one fell soup, right? You do one translation for all of them and it, it doesn't sound specifically local to any particular one. I think that in general, there's a bias towards sounding more Mexican because Mexico has a, the biggest population in within Spanish-speaking countries. And then, of course, the, there's another Spanish that's for Spain in the tech world, right? This is what I'm, I'm, I'm speaking about. And the funny thing is the other industry that has done the same thing is Hollywood, where I and most people in my generation and other generations in Latin America grew up watching movies that were dubbed in a very generic Spanish. And so, which also, I would say it was like, 50 or 60% Mexican because of the proximity to the US, the size of the market, etc. And so in my head, when someone uses words that are used in Mexico more than in Argentina, like what you call a gas station, are completely different words. In Argentina, it's an estación de servicio, service station. And in Mexico, it's gasolinera. It's like the place for gas, right? And so mm -hmm. to me, that sounds like movie Spanish in my head, right? And I was telling this to my teammates. We work in the two industries, Hollywood and tech, that have created this generic Spanish that only exists in our products, but doesn't really belong with anyone who actually speaks it at home with their family, right? As an example. That's why I think it's good to have these globalized teams with people who have lived different experiences and who are different from each other so everyone can learn from each other. And we can help each other see things that are just, that are blind spots for, for different cultures. Like I, there are things that I don't see that my American teammates see. And so I learn from them, right? For example, we were talking about when is a good time to watch movies? Because of course, we're all obsessed with watching entertainment. And of course, one of the easy answers is when it's raining, right? And then both a teammate from India and myself were thinking, yeah, but when it's raining, the way I grew up, and this is, of course, before the internet, when it's raining, what you would do is you would unplug the TV so it there wouldn't be a, a lightning strike that would kill your TV, right? So it's like the opposite of watching movies. is <laughs> the time when you can't watch anything because it's raining. And different experiences, different lives growing up help inform what the culture concepts are and what are the, the tropes that people live with and so on. So I think that's why we're focused on this. And I'm personally trying to reach out to content designers who are multilingual and especially who don't specifically write in English as their first language, but can do that too. Because the way we work so far is that English continues to be the source language. 
And so that's a really interesting perspective. And uh, I always want to talk to content designers who have that background so that we can, you know, exchange notes and maybe know each other to see if in the future we can collaborate in some way. That's awesome. In the audience, we have people from all over the globe and UX writers from many different countries. So if you'd like, and you're a content designer or UX writer, you'd like to help Netflix in a way, just reach out, Diego. I will uh, share the LinkedIn in the show notes. That's about it. I think it's a really great idea. Because, yeah, thank uh, you. Yeah, I'm only active on LinkedIn. I don't have other social networks that I use that much, but I'm happy to connect, as we were saying before recording, with people who express a purpose for connecting and not just send the invitations randomly. Because <laughs> I right. think that's the it's first... It's also a content design. Exactly. That's the first step as a content designer. Use your words for a purpose. <laughs> right. Don't just press connect, but when you press connect on LinkedIn, you can add a note, add a note and say, hey, listen... I'm from Israel and I speak English and Hebrew and I'd love to help you with your content design efforts in my local space here in Israel or here in Egypt or whatever you are right now in the world. That's a great career tip. <laughs> That's a great career tip. That's what we're trying to do here. Okay, we're about to finish soon. Talking about career tips. So let's say that someone would like to get a job as a UX writer and they don't have any experience in UX writing. What would be your tip for that, to get into the field? Yeah, the, the great news is I was that person three, maybe four years ago. So it can happen. <laughs> That's the good news. <laughs> I was lucky that I I came from journalism. And that's one of the few fields that have a lot of sim similarities with UX writing and content design. I've also seen a lot of copywriters from the advertising world make the transition. Also, people from... Library science, library systems who who can really understand information and the organization of information are really good for this. And so a lot of us have that question, how do I get started? And what I, my personal case was that I, I had the lucky situation that one UX writing project just landed on, on my desk, let's say, at SurveyMonkey. And then... Uh, when I, I saw how fun that was and how much I, I liked doing that, I started asking for more. And I had a small portfolio of projects that I could show. And that's how I moved on to a full-time content design job. It was a pretty swift and fortunate transition for me. But I think if you are already working at a tech company as a writer, you have a, a big leg up because you can start doing that. You just you know start raising your hand and being vocal about what you want to do. And if you're not, I think one thing that I've seen done successfully is using doing critiques of existing apps and websites, but also rewriting them, right? The way you would think that they would work better. And for companies like Netflix, I think it's really important to, to see a writer that not only writes well, but also that can explain why. I think that's a really key part of content design and not just UX writing. It's getting a few steps back from the writing step and thinking about the strategy and thinking about the business goals. What are you trying to achieve here and why you're going to write in which way, what tone you're going to use, what, which words you're going to choose, etc. So that the people who are looking at your portfolio can see the thinking behind the words. A snappy headline will always carry a lot of weight. People love good writing, especially when interviewing candidates. But 
when you add strategic thinking behind that, it's like a superpower. You have all the things. So I really encourage people to to show the foundations of their work. And that's something that I do every day in my work is make sure that I document why I'm writing things the way I'm writing them because it helps my teammates who are not writers to see uh, why I'm making decisions the way I'm making them. And it helps me come back and see why did I write this this way? Because you can come back to some copy that you wrote a year or two ago and be like, who wrote this, <laughs> right? Like the meme goes, and it turns out it was you. So you need to know why you did it. That's a great tip. Being strategic behind your writing, always add some rationale why you did what you did and document it. It's also really important. Like as a graphic designer, looking on my old designs, like, you know, you think you just have, why I did it. But <laughs> there was a reason. I'm sure there was a reason. All right, Diego, if... I think this is it. We are going to ask the question. And that question is, how do you think we should name this episode? Okay, let's see. We talked about um, style guides. We talked about languages. We, we talked about podcasting. We talked about global perspectives. So, mm -hmm. And by the way, you told me also about the poll that you're sending, when uh, how you're being mindful Uh, about different languages as a bilingual person? Yeah, I think something like uh, how being multilingual or multicultural person can help you as a content designer. I'm not giving you a great mm. headline and that's embarrassing because I'm a no, journalist, but <laughs> usually the first one is not the best. First of all, for sure, the first one is never the best. And brain exercise we're doing in a, every end of an episode. I think it's a good one, though. Like, uh, we okay. can always spice it up with, like, the three, yeah. you know, the three lessons you need to know about being global as a content designer. You know, we can spice it right. up. <laughs> I trust your but, editing but I think it's here. <laughs> well, yeah, we have Aaron, our editor, is, uh, is the best. Okay, cool. All right. Diego, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun to have you here today. I will add the info to your LinkedIn in the show notes and also a link to your podcast as well so people could check it out. Awesome. If there are any Spanish speakers out there, we will welcome them at El Valle de los Tergos. Thank you so much, Yuval. Thank you, Diego. Bye.